Luke chapter 16, we'll begin at verse 19. I want us to read the whole story together, shall we? Let's read the word of the Lord together. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Lord, we are so grateful for your presence we've sensed and for the touch that you have given upon the lives of your people today. I ask now that you will open our hearts, that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. Let this be a challenging and inspiring word. Let it be a transforming word. I lift up other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. Especially I pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. Draw them, Holy Spirit, back to the Savior. Don't let one of them be lost, I pray. I ask all of these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you, are you ready to die? I don't, I don't mean to begin this message in a depressing manner, but if Jesus doesn't return pretty soon, the statistical probability of you dying is 100%. The reason it's important to talk about this is because dying is a very real part of living. 
fact, it's been my observation that you cannot truly live until you're ready to die. Both the message of the Bible and the history of human experience clearly let us know that this present physical reality is only a temporary status. In light of eternity, this life is really very, very short. That's the message of 1 Chronicles 29, 15 that says that our days on earth are as a vanishing shadow. Job 7 and 6 says that life is like a weaver's shuttle. Job 9.25 likens life to a hurrying messenger. Psalm 39.5 tells us that life is no longer than a handbreadth. James 4.14 reminds us that life is like a vapor that quickly vanishes away. You learn about the brevity of life when you walk through a cemetery and look at the headstones. It's rare to find the remains of anyone who lived even to be 100 years old, which, which seems like a long time until it's compared to eternity. When you understand just how temporary life is, then the question becomes, what happens to us when we die? When this physical life is over, what's next? When you go to the pages of the Bible, which is our source book and our guidebook, you find that it has a lot to say about death and dying. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't talk about death in terms of annihilation or discontinuation. Instead, the Bible talks about death in terms of life. The Bible is very clear that there is a quality and dimension to life that never dies, never decays. It is eternal. In the Bible, death is described as a transition from one kind of life to another kind or quality or dimension of life. The Bible talks about death as being like a door you walk through where you are released from the constraints of this physical body, but the spirit, which is the essential essence of life, that spirit continues to live in a different place, a different dimension, a different quality. The teaching of the Bible is that when death comes, life is changed, not ended. This is the message that comes through in the story Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke that we just read a few moments ago at the beginning of the message. In this text, there are two central characters. There's, first of all, a nameless man identified simply as a rich man. Now, the fact that he was rich isn't necessarily a problem, except when you read the story, you find that he never used his wealth for the good of anyone except himself. The second character is a man named Lazarus, whose name means God helps us. Now, to the average person looking on, it would seem that this man was misnamed. Not only was he poor, but he was infirm. There were sores that covered his body, probably leprosy or some form of ulcerous skin cancer. And he was so weak, he couldn't even keep the dogs from licking those sores. In the story, Jesus says that Lazarus was laid at the gate of the rich man. Now, our English translation misses some of the drama that goes on when it says that. This isn't the tender setting down of a poor sick man that we might think it was. The meaning of the original word used is that he was thrown out at the gate. 
of the rich man. Now, there's quite a contrast between these two men. First, there's a great contrast in disposition or the condition or the lifestyle of the two men. While the people of this world put a lot of stock in the quality uh, or in this quality of lifestyle, the reality is that disposition or lifestyle isn't the true measure of a person. When you measure a person, the most important question isn't the balance in your bank account or the value of the properties you hold. It isn't the cut of your clothes. It isn't the titles you hold. It isn't the influence and power you wield. The most important question you can ever ask yourself is, where do I stand with God and where will I spend eternity? Those are the most important questions. Too many people are focused so strongly on today that they forget about tomorrow. Too many people are worried about the temporal and they completely ignore the eternal. In this story, not only do we, are we able to see the contrast between the disposition of the two main characters, but we're also given a contrast between their destinations. Jesus said the rich man died and found himself in hell. Lazarus died and found himself comforted in Abraham's bosom, which we shall see in a few minutes is a euphemistic way to describe paradise or what we might think of as heaven. These few short verses lay out for us the choices for eternity. Right here we have illustrated the importance of taking the long view because there are only two eternal choices, heaven or hell. Now, as I go through the rest of this message, I want to impress upon you once again, as I have done so often in this series, that what I'm preaching today isn't science fiction. This isn't fantasy land. When I talk about there only being two choices for eternity, I'm talking about a reality that each and every one of us is going to face when we come to the end of our days on this earth. Now, those of you who have listened to me preach for any length of time know that I'm not really what you might characterize as a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I don't spend a lot of time in the pulpit blasting away at people trying to condemn you or trying to scare you out of your sinning ways. Maybe I ought to do that more often. I'm not sure. But I've found that most people come into this place or who join us online, most of you are coming out of a world in which you're struggling just to keep your heads above water. Most people are coming out of a world in which it's easy to lose hope and completely give up. Most of the people in this world carry around enough hell with them already. You don't need to come here week after week and get more of the same from me. So what I try to do is I try to get you to lift your eyes up above your problem and get your eyes on Jesus. I try to put a little bit of heaven in your soul to get you out of the hell you're already experiencing. Now, that being said, there's no getting around the fact that at some point you need to know your options. You need to remember that the decisions you make while you live today are going to determine which one of these two places you're going to spend eternity in because there really are only two options. In this story, the rich man lived only for himself. He lived only for the moment. He lived only for the here and now. He lived only to please himself, do what he wanted, how he wanted to do it. He failed to live with an eye to eternity. He failed to make the proper preparation. 
And when he died, he discovered that he had made a horrible mistake. When he died, Jesus said in verse 23, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Now, there are various words that are translated hell in the Bible. From these words and from what the Bible says here and in other passages, we can learn something about the nature of this awful place. The testimony of the Bible is that hell isn't just a negative emotion. Hell isn't just a feeling. Hell isn't just a condition. Hell is a place. It's just as real as the building in which we're sitting right now. In the Old Testament, the Bible uses the word Sheol, and in the New Testament, the word Hades, both of which mean the place of departed spirits. Hell is described in the Bible with the word Gehenna, which has reference to the Valley of Hinnom. It was the place where those who were slain in battle were thrown and were burned. It was a place of refuse. It was a place of garbage. It was, it was a giant garbage dump, worse than the foulest landfill you've ever been around. It was a foul, smelly, burning place. In Matthew 25 and 30, hell is described as outer darkness. Hell is a very real, very tangible place. Hell is a place of separation. First, it's a place of complete separation from God. Now, some people must think of that as a good thing because it's obvious from the way they live on this earth that they want nothing to do with God. So the idea of an eternity where God doesn't mess with them is very appealing. But not only is it a place of separation from God, it's also a place of separation from everything good, everything lovely, everything pleasant, everything that has been loved by the one who winds up in that horrible place. You know, some people like to joke, and they like to say, well, if they wind up in hell, they'll at least have a lot of company of their equally profane friends. But this story teaches that the separation is also isolation. There's an intense loneliness in that place. There may be a lot of other people there, but you won't know it. You will only know the torment that you yourself are experiencing. Hell is a place of separation. Hell is a place of sensibility. The story says that the rich man was in torment. Hell is a place of pain. Those who wind up there have feelings and they have emotions. Hell is a place of guilt and remorse. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of misery and suffering. It's a place of intense frustration. It's a place of anger. Now, there are a couple of theories about the afterlife that have recently gained a lot of traction, but when you examine them in light of the Scripture, they don't have any merit. The first one is universalism. This is the end, the end result of saying love wins. The idea is that God is love, and because of his great love, he will find a way to ensure that everybody is saved and nobody goes to eternal punishment in hell. According to this theory, the love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross applies his payment of sin to everyone regardless of their decisions on this earth. And we're told God is too loving to send anybody to hell. Everybody makes it, love wins. 
The problem with that idea is that it ignores what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The other popular notion is annihilation. This idea says that God is too merciful to punish people forever. Oh, you may go to hell initially, but the punishment is only temporary. It isn't eternal. According to this theory, you will be punished for your sin, but then you'll just be extinguished. Hell, in this case, is simply ceasing to exist. And the argument is made that if God issued this kind of eternal punishment, especially for someone who was essentially what we would call a good person, then God would be unjust. Well, here's what I know. God is always, without exception, unerringly just. His ways are so much higher than my ways, I cannot begin to fathom his ways. So when it comes to God's justice, I'm going to stand with the statement that Abraham made in Genesis 18 and 25. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer is absolutely. To be honest, I got to tell you. I truly wish that either universalism or annihilation was true. I would rather believe that nobody goes to hell, but eventually everybody gets to heaven. I really would. Barring that, I shudder at the possibility of someone being tormented forever and ever throughout all eternity. So I wish there would be a determined end to the torment. Sadly, those theories don't square with the plain teaching of the Bible. See, Jesus talked about hell as a place where the fire is not quenched and where the worm doesn't die. He talked about hell as a place where those who reject him on this earth are punished and tormented for a never-ending eternity. Hell is a place of no escape. Once a person is there, there is no hope, there is no help, there is no reprieve. Forever and ever and ever throughout endless ages of eternity, the punishment continues. Never letting up, never diminishing in intensity, never becoming any more bearable than when it first began. This is the lesson that is taught in the story that is the basis for this message today. The rich man found himself in hell from which there was no escape, not because of his wealth, but because he depended on his own human resources. He found himself there because he left God out of the picture of his life. The truth is, that is our greatest danger. The greatest danger we have isn't that we will live in blatant opposition to God. It isn't that we will be aggressively anti-God or anti-Christ. The greatest danger we have is that we will leave God out of our lives and depend on our own resources and our own ingenuity to make it. 
The greatest danger is that we will depend on the fact that we really are good people. You know, that we're law-abiding citizens, that, that our parents took us to church, that, that we were baptized, that, that our name is on the membership role of the church, that, that we treat our fellow man with respect, that we give generously to charity. The danger we face is that we will depend upon our own abilities and our own resources to make it to the right place in eternity. The problem most of us have is that our concept of God is way too small. We tend to have this idea that God is the perfect 10. Now, obviously, we aren't a 10, but we work really hard, and, and if we were asked to evaluate ourselves, most of us would say that in our better moments, we're, you know, maybe a six or a seven. A very few pious people might even be an eight. So when you compare a seven to a ten, we're really doing okay. That's not too bad, Right? The problem with that thinking is God is not a 10. God isn't a hundred or a thousand or even a million. God is way, way more than a million. And compared to his way more than a million, what's your seven? I'm telling you that ignoring God's plan of redemption through faith in Jesus and trying to depend upon your own resources will land you in the same place as the rich man. It's the place of eternal punishment and torment. You can choose your destination, but your choice is final. The Bible doesn't make any allowances for any kind of purification process where you can get out after a good time for good behavior or after a period of time for good behavior. There's no atonement period where once you've paid your dues, you can be released. There isn't any possibility of your friends and your loved ones saying special prayers and doing special deeds in order to bail you out. There's a finality to hell. Once in that place, there is no possibility of escape. Can you imagine eternal torment? I'm not sure that I can. I'm not sure I even want to. But I know it sounds like something I want to escape. Oh, I know you don't want to hear a sermon like this. You want to go back and sing some more about the name of Jesus. And you want to sing more about he's God and everybody shout and worship. But I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't warn you about the terrible punishment that awaits those who reject the invitation of Jesus. I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't do everything I could to keep you out of that horrible place called hell. Now, are you thoroughly depressed? Thankfully, hell isn't the only possibility for eternity. I thought somebody would be happy about that, you know. There, there is an alternative destination. It's called heaven. 
And once again, let me remind you, when the Bible talks about heaven, it isn't talking about nirvana. It isn't talking about some kind of never-never land. It isn't the product of an overworked imagination. Heaven is a real place. I have to be honest with you and tell you that I don't know exactly where heaven is located. Neither do I know exactly how all the splendor and grandeur of heaven comes together. But there is one thing of which I am fully convinced. The God who could start out with nothing but himself and speak a word of creativity and with that word create this grand and glorious and complex universe in which we live. And then could hang all this something he had created out of nothing in the midst of nowhere. And it could step by step create all the intricacies of this planet and establish the laws of the universe and set it all in motion and hold it all together so that it functions with such precision, then could reach down and create a living, breathing man as complex and as awesomely wonderful as the human body is from the dust of the ground, I have absolutely no problem believing this God is fully capable of making heaven a reality. When the Bible talks about leaving this life for eternity in the presence of the Lord, there are three very important words that help describe the eternal existence in a place called heaven. Everything we know about eternity tells us that when you draw your final breath on this earth, then you will go immediately to either heaven or hell. In that transition, you will first be translated to a different form of life. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, crucified between two thieves, the one thief, the penitent thief, said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You remember that? Jesus responded to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. At death, we are translated from an earthly dimension to a spiritual one. We are translated from the mortal to the immortal. When you die, the shell of your body remains, but your spirit goes immediately into real life with Jesus to await the final resurrection where your spirit will be reunited with a resurrected, glorified body. After death, there's translation. Then we see not only is it a translated body, but it is a transcendent body. Philippians 3.21 says that the Lord Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. All that really means is that your transcendent body is going to be just like the Lord Jesus' glorified body. Your present physical body, see, isn't capable to handle the splendor and glory of heaven. You can't stand being in the fully revealed presence of the Lord. You know, sometimes people come forward and we pray for them, and they just get so overwhelmed by the presence of God that they just fall out, fall down. Well, just imagine being in the, that's just a, a small, 
in the south we say a smidgen of the glory of God. Just imagine what happens when you're in the full revealed presence of the glory. You can't stand it. Your physical body can't make it through eternity. So the Lord has prepared a body for you like unto his own glorified body. You know, after his resurrection, you remember the Lord appeared on several occasions to his disciples. They'd be gathered in a room and suddenly, boom, he'd be standing there. He didn't use the door, didn't come through a window. Bible even makes it clear that they were all bolted and locked, but he would just be there. It was a body transcendent above time, space, and matter. This is a picture of what your glorified body is going to be like in heaven. The transcendent body of Jesus had substance. It wasn't a vapor. You remember he even invited Thomas to place his finger in the nail prints in his hands and to thrust his hand into the place in his side where the spear had pierced him. Not only that, but his transcendent body was a functional body. You remember Jesus met the disciples on the beach and he ate fish with them. It wasn't because he was hungry, but it demonstrates that this transcendent body we're going to have is a functional body. In addition, it had identity. They could recognize him as Jesus because he looked like Jesus. He had the same identifying marks. And can I just pause briefly long enough to tell you that the only scars that are going to be evident in Jesus are the scars that are present in the body of the Lord Jesus. The only scars present in heaven are going to be the scars in the body of the Lord Jesus. You and I will not bear, we won't bear surgery scars. We won't bear any of the other marks of living on this life. They will all be perfected bodies. Only Jesus has scars in his body, and they are the scars for our redemption. Praise be to God. Now, when you're in the, in the eternity of God in your glorified body, you're not going to have to go around introducing yourself to all your old friends that you knew on this earth. You're not going to have to introduce yourself to your family members. You're going to look like yourself. They're going to look like themselves. They'll be able to recognize you. You'll recognize them. This transcendent body has identity. The difference between is that in the physical body, the center of life Life is in the blood. But in the transcendent body, the center of life isn't blood, it's spirit. Finally, the Bible tells us that not only is your eternal body going to be a translated body and a transcendent body, but there's a sense of triumph. It is a triumphant body. Someone has said that everybody's going to have three surprises when they get to heaven. The first one is they will be surprised that some people they thought were going to be there aren't there. The second one is they will be surprised that some people they didn't think were going to be there are there. The third one is the biggest surprise of all. They will be surprised that they are there. (laughs) In verse 25, Jesus describes something of this triumph when Abraham says to the rich man, Remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here. You know, some, some have gotten this mistaken idea <clears throat> that heaven is going to be one continuous church service. And even though they like church, they're not sure they want that for eternity. Some think the pastor's sermons are all the eternity they can handle of that. <clears throat> In his book, Whatever Happened to the Gospel, Dr. R.T. Kendall observes that the Bible talks more about what will not be in heaven than it does about what will be there. And he identifies some of the things we can be fairly certain are true about this wondrous place called heaven. 
First, heaven is a place of restoration of what was lost in the fall and in the Garden of Eden. We don't have a clue the kind of potential that is locked up inside each and every one of us. If the people who study this kind of thing are correct, then you and I don't even use a fraction of the abilities we have. One thing we know about heaven is that when we are in that place, we will have the full use of all the faculties that were given to us when man was first created. We will have the full restoration of all that God intended for us to enjoy. See, that's why the child of God has no reason to fear death. That's why we can have peace and we can have a sense of comfort. And we can even sing at the graveside of a loved one. That's why grief doesn't have to totally immobilize us. Because we know that at death, all the restraints are taken off. We step into the glorious presence of our wonderful Lord. We finally are able to experience the full dimension of those things that now we only behold through a dark, smoky glass. And now we are only able to know in part. Second, I want to tell you that heaven is a place where all the people of God who ever lived will dwell. The number of people that will be in heaven is so great that no one can count the number, the Bible says. Every person in the history of humankind who is redeemed by the blood of Jesus is going to be present in that place. They will come from every century, from every generation, from every year in the history of the human race. According to Revelation 5 and 9, they will come from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Third, I'll tell you, heaven is a holy place. Revelation 21 and 27 says, And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will not be the slightest taint or hint of sin in that holy place. There will be no one selling drugs in that place. No one indulging in prostitution or pornography. There will be no wicked music that is inspired by the demonic. There will be no lying, no cheating, no betraying, no infidelity, no dishonesty. There will be no miscarriage of justice, no bribery, no evil judges, and no crooked politicians. There will be no idolatry, no witchcraft, no astrology charts, and no fortune tellers. There will be no unfaithfulness in marriage, no marriage separations, no divorces, no adultery, no fornication, no sexual perversion, no raping, no kidnapping, no abuse, no mistreatment. There will be no policemen and no sheriffs. There will be no lawlessness in heaven. There will be no jails in heaven. There will be no crooked lawyers who get people who get rich people off the hook but show contempt for the poor person. There will be no injustice in heaven where the well-connected are protected but the person with no money or connections goes to prison. Fourth, I would tell you that heaven is a place where all the residents have been glorified. I already told you our bodies will be like the glorified body of the Lord Jesus. We will have been changed from mortality to immortality, from corruption to incorruption. That means that in heaven there's not going to be any blindness. There will be no disease, no illness, no sickness. No one will be in a wheelchair. No one will be walking with canes or on crutches. There will be no one limping from muscular dystrophy. There will be nobody weak from multiple sclerosis. There will be no one wearing hearing aids. We will not need glasses. No one will be malnourished. No one will suffer from being overweight. There'll be no heart disease, no need for stents, no need for bypasses. No one 
one will suffer from breathing difficulties. No one will suffer from memory loss or concentration problems. Alzheimer's will be completely unknown. There will be no allergies, no coughing, no sneezing, no sore throats, no sinus infections. There will be no digestive problems, no kidney or bladder issues. There will be no cancer. There will be no learning disabilities. There will be no backaches, no hip, knee, or feet difficulties. There will be no arthritis. There will be no lack of strength from old age. No one will be bedfast or needing to be fed. There will, there will be no teeth issues, no cavities, no toothaches, no tooth implants, no dentures. There will be no need for dentists, no need for optometrists, no need for any physicians, no surgeons, no medical conditions, no medical consultants, no nurses, no paramedics. There will be no filled waiting rooms for doctor's appointments. There will be no ambulances. There will be no need for health insurance. There will be no psychiatrists, no psychologists, no marriage counselors. Being glorified means that you will be sinless. That means there will be no sin and no temptation. There will be no jealousy or envy in heaven. There will be no vanity, no proud looks, no competitiveness, no one-upmanship. There will be no lusting, no coveting, no hate, no anger, no bitterness, no unforgiveness, no grudges, no need for vindication, no need to be noticed. There will be no desire for recognition or getting the credit for a good deed. There will be no desire to get even, no need to clear your name, no dishonesty, no untruthfulness, no betrayal, no need to prove yourself. Oh, fifth, let me tell you, heaven is a place where there are no financial worries. No one will be in debt. There will be no bill collectors, no last warning notices in the mail. There will be no need for savings or retirement accounts. There will be no monthly payments for mortgages, no water bills, no electric bills, no heating bills, no medical bills, no dental bills. I don't know why I keep coming back to the dentist bills, but that just, if you're a dentist, I'm sorry, but I really don't like going to your offices, all right? There will be no anxiety over what to wear, no upward mobility issues, no envy over wealth or expensive cars or huge homes or prestigious locations. There will be no boasting of a great salary and no need to show off your home. Six, heaven is a place where there is no sadness. Revelation 21.4 says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I'm telling you, there will be no funerals in heaven. No goodbyes. No sorrow. No pain. There will be no grief over a lost loved one. Whether a child, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a spouse, a close friend... There will be no undertakers, no, no morticians. There will be no need for pastoral care for grieving people over their loss. 
There will be no weeping for grief, no weeping for pain, no weeping over disappointment or rejection or heartbreak. There will be no loneliness in heaven. There's so much more. I, I, but let me finally tell you that heaven is home. Paul writes in Philippians 3 and 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why you still have trials and tribulations, financial problems, and health problems? Maybe, ju just maybe, it's because if you got all you wanted here below, you would become too enamored with the things of this earth. God wants you to fix your eyes on that city that Abraham envisioned, the one whose builder and maker is God. That is your true home. That's an awful lot to look at today, and I still haven't even gotten below the surface. Where this brings me to in closing is to once again ask the question that I ask at the beginning of this message. Are you ready to die? I've been trying to help you remember that there is more to your life than just today. I've been trying to get you to see beyond what is so you can behold what is to come. After death, there are, there are only two options. The choice you make while you are still alive is what will determine which option is available to you. Let me ask you something. Do you know what you have to do to go to hell? You don't have to murder somebody. You don't have to rob a bank. You don't have to commit adultery. You don't have to embezzle from your company. Hmm, no. Going to hell is a lot easier than that. All you have to do to go to hell is nothing. Ignore God. Ignore his offer of a free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. Live however you want to live. Just, just go with the flow. Never make an active, assertive, conscious decision to surrender to Jesus and to serve him. It's just that simple. Uh, but God has provided a way by which you can be certain that when you die, you will not go to hell, but you'll go to heaven. That way is through faith in Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The promise of God is John 3, verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> For God so loved the world. Every time you see that in the world, why don't you just put your name there? For God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son. And whenever you see whosoever, you can put your name there too. That if John believes in, in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to condemn John, 
but that John, through him, might be saved. That's all it takes is, I will trust Jesus. With faith in Jesus, you don't have to fear death. With faith in Jesus, you can have hope for both time and eternity. With faith in Jesus, you can have an assurance of a heavenly home. If you haven't made that choice to believe on Jesus and surrender your life to him, or if you don't have that assurance, I want to tell you, you can take care of that right now before you leave this service. See, see, you are the one who determines by the choice you make what happens to you after death. So I ask you, are you ready to die? Do you know you're ready? If it came your time before the sun comes up on a new day, and you did nothing else other than what you've already done, where would you spend eternity? That's the question before you today. I'm going to ask you to respond to this message as if this were the last time you would have an opportunity to respond to the invitation of the Holy Spirit to surrender your life to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment, please? While our heads are bowed, I'm just going to ask this simple question. If there's anybody here who would say, Pastor, I'm not ready. And if I were to die, I know I wouldn't go to heaven, but I want to know that I would. Today, I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to put my trust in Him. Maybe this is the first time you've ever done that, or maybe you've done that several times, but, but you don't have that real assurance in your heart that your faith is in Jesus alone. And today you want to settle that issue. You want to do that. If that's you, could I just, would you just put your hand up so I know who I'm praying for? Thank you, ma'am. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Today, I'm making a choice. Thank you, ma'am. I'm making a choice to surrender to Jesus. Father, I'm praying for these people who have raised their hands. And I'm also praying for those who, for whatever reason, were too intimidated to raise their hand, but in their heart, they're making that choice now. And I pray that today would be the day that we would truly surrender our life to you. And from this day forward, we would live in agreement with your word, your will, and your way. Forgive us for ignoring you. Forgive us for going our own way and leaving you out of the picture of our life. We recognize that it isn't, it isn't all the good deeds that we do. It isn't living a so-called good life, but it is putting our faith in Jesus and his accomplished work on the cross that's what gives us access to the eternity in heaven
So today we do that. We surrender our lives to you. Help us now to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.